If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah, we will begin our um, three-week series related to Christmas, speaking of this Advent, this time of waiting on the birth of our Savior. And we begin this morning in a famous text in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, or chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. If you would all turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And if you have the ability, please rise with me as we begin this morning by reading the famous prophecy of the coming king. Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet here speaking says this, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. and They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As we begin this series this week, we are only but a few weeks away from Christmas. Um, And as such, we are just a a few weeks away from one of the most exciting moments throughout the year for the Christian, and indeed for our overall culture, for many people get excited for Christmas. Many of you, especially you who are younger amongst us, are perhaps most excited as you await to see that time that, that in childhood almost feels magical, there's something different about this time of year. Many of us are excited to spend time with family. Many of you students are no doubt excited to be done with finals and away for a few weeks from school. And while most of us feel a bit of excitement and and enjoy hearing the words, these familiar words of Isaiah the prophet, I think a lot of us could admit that as we grow older, a lot of that excitement that we feel in our younger days over Christmas tends to fade a bit, doesn't it? Christmas doesn't feel as magical to an adult as it typically does to a child. The reasons for that might vary. With adulthood comes more responsibilities and in the midst of, of trying to pay your bills, in the midst of trying to maintain your marriage and take care of your kids, the last thing on your mind perhaps is celebrating yet another holiday. The stress of this life can seem overwhelming at times. And for many of us, Christmas, even if it's just a few weeks away, is somewhat of an afterthought at this point in time in our lives. For others who have suffered a significant loss in their life, these these particular times of celebration can actually be extremely difficult. And for many people who have suffered the loss of a loved one who are going through particularly challenging times, Christmas is just a reminder of the loss that they feel. 
Christmas is a reminder of, of how good things used to be, and as such, Christmas is something we just hope to, to get through quickly with relatively little fanfare. For many of us, at least for some of us here, the excitement of Christmas has dwindled a bit in recent years. And as such, even though we hear the words of Isaiah the prophet, and even though we sing songs that speak of excitement, we acknowledge in our own hearts that some of that excitement is lacking. And it seems justifiable. As we come to this famous text today, however, what I hope we see is that that in all reality, it's only when you've experienced darkness, it's only when you understand how difficult this life is, that the true light of Christmas can be appreciated. It's only when you go through those difficult times that 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 real magic of Christmas can be understood and can be appreciated. For as we read this familiar text, we read a text as we will see that was given in the darkest of times, in the most difficult of situations. But as we understand those difficult situations and as we, we try to process just how glorious this promise was, we understand just how glorious the celebration of Christmas truly is. And again, we can recapture that childlike sense of wonder over a holiday that is so familiar to us. And as we do, I hope all of us as believers can recapture a bit of that childhood sense of wonder and anticipation as we not only celebrate Christmas, but as we await that even greater coming day of Christ's return. For ultimately, that is what this celebration is all about. And so in order to recapture this morning, we will examine the dark times of Isaiah. We will then see how Christ is that dawn that was long awaited for. And ultimately, we will see that in light of the coming Son and His return. Before we do so, though, let me open us up in prayer. And we will dig into this text in Isaiah. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. God, we come before you, of course, in the midst of all sorts of difficult situations that that will greet us the moment we leave our time here this morning. God, I know that there are many people in here who are suffering through their own losses. There are no doubt individuals here who are struggling to find that level of excitement that they once felt over the celebration of the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. And there are some others who are still excited and still anticipating the coming Christmas day. For all of us, God, I pray that the words of Isaiah might, might sound fresh. Might they come across as news to us, Father. Holy Spirit, might you be working our hearts to cause us to recapture the proper sense of wonder that is contained in these words and the proper sense of awe and appreciation that is found in their fulfillment, God. Might we see that this text in Isaiah is not a text simply to read during December, God, but is a text that is a great reminder of the joy that we have that is eternal. It's a great reminder that indeed in Christ we have everything we need and in Christ we have a hope that cannot be taken away from us, God. So this morning, Lord, might you cause our hearts to to be renewed in that proper sense of passion, be renewed in our understanding and our appreciation of this time of waiting, God, both for Christmas as well as for the greater day to come, God. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray all these things. Amen. As I already mentioned, It's important as believers that when we read a text like Isaiah 9, that we don't simply skip ahead to Isaiah 9 verse 6, as oftentimes we do. There we read the most familiar words of the text, where Isaiah says that a child will be born to us, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders, so on and so forth. Now we will get to that text, of course, this morning. 
But before we can appreciate that, it's first essential that we understand just how shocking that prophecy would have been in light of how dark of a period the prophecy came. To say that the period of time that the people of Judah were experiencing was dark is is almost an understatement. For when you understand this context, you see just how hopeless the people of Judah who who originally received this prophecy would have no doubt felt in in that day and age. Whether it was their political landscape or their spiritual status or their physical outlook when it came to their future, every aspect of the life of the individuals in Judah would have seemed utterly hopeless when the prophet Isaiah came on the scene. Politically speaking, you can appreciate some of that darkness if you just jump back a couple of chapters to Isaiah chapter 7. There in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, you see a a threat that has come up that has threatened the security of the people living in Judah, the land of Jerusalem. There in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, the prophet again speaking says, It came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, the resin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. They could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, the heart and the, hearts of his, the heart of the king and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. When Isaiah gets up to speak in in chapter 9, he is speaking to the people in Judah who face a very real imminent threat that surrounds them. For at this point in time, the tribes to their north and the people groups to their south have gathered together for the sake of, of trying to take over Jerusalem. Trying to take that precious holy city that is so famous throughout the Old Testament and still famous indeed today. And although they could not conquer it back in Isaiah 7, they have taken over nearby territory. And it seems from the perspective of the Judah uh, natives that, that it's only a matter of time before their nearby threats come up again. It's only a matter of time before more war ensues and that their land is taken from them. And so real was that threat, of course, as the text says. Their hearts shook. Even the heart of the king of Judah was terrified at this threat. And yet as terrifying as that threat was, In that day and age, there was an even greater threat that that loomed off to the north and east. For off in a distance, there was also a growing Assyrian Empire. And if you know anything about that time in history, you know that the Assyrian Empire was an utterly terrifying group of people. In that particular moment in history, that empire was growing at a shocking rate, taking over any territory they chose to take over. The Assyrians had an army that could not be stopped. They would simply roll into your territory, take over whatever they wanted to, kill whoever they choose, and then deport whomever survived. As such, the Assyrians were a terrifying threat. And so at the moment, politically speaking, it would seem as if Judah was without hope. Now, of course, biblically speaking, they should have looked to Yahweh as their, as their help. They should have looked to Him for their hope. But politically speaking, things were darker than this. And instead of seeking out the help of Yahweh, we are told that King Ahaz, the king of Judah, sought help from the Assyrian Empire. In essence, he he believed that their defeat was imminent, and so you'd rather just join up with the force rather than be defeated from them. And so, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 16, we're told that King Ahaz seeks the help of the Assyrians. And the king Ahaz even goes out of his way to say, I am your son, I am your servant, To, to the king of Assyria. He swears allegiance to that godless empire to the east 
the people of Judah swear their allegiance and and they do so no doubt believing that, that this surely will bring about their protection. From a biblical standpoint, we understand how foolish this is, but from a worldly standpoint, we can see where they're coming from, can we not? For if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. And sure, the Assyrians might be godless, they might be harsh, but, but surely it's better to join up with them than, than face destruction, right? You could hear similar arguments made today without a doubt. But of course, to join up with the Assyrians was utterly foolish. Isaiah himself told the people of Judah that. But still, they, they sought out that help. This choice, of course, was not necessarily too much of a shock. For as you continue to read in Isaiah, you see that, that the political landscape was not the only thing dark for the people of Judah. Rather, their spiritual state was equally depressing. For in the same way that they were quick to join up with the Assyrians, they were quick to adopt any and every spiritual practice of other people groups outside of Judah. And in the case of Isaiah chapter 8, you see one of these practices in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19, even being the practice of consulting the dead through spiritists, through mediums, things that were strictly forbidden in Old Testament law. There in Isaiah chapter 8, you see that justification in verse 19, where Isaiah says, when they say to you, consult the mediums, and the spirit is to whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they, should they consult the living or the dead on behalf of the living? The prophet Isaiah speaks again of, of how blind the people of Judah were at this point in time. So deceived were they that not only was teaming up with the Assyrians justifiable, but in their minds, even putting their own godless practices into play was, was a justifiable act, as long as the ends justify the means, as long as, as it brings about their own protection. The people of God at this point in time had totally forsaken the law. They had turned away from it. Even the king of Judah, King Ahaz, had gone as far as to, to bring about his own remodel of the temple in Jerusalem. And so he took, he took other aspects of other godless religions and, and decided to adopt them within the city of Jerusalem, within the temple. He built a new altar for himself. He did whatever he could to, to convince the Assyrians that they were just like them, spiritually speaking. They, they could fit in too. They could be acceptable in the Assyrian Empire. And they did this all the while assuming that, that there would be no consequences. They did this all the while assuming that, that Yahweh would somehow be okay with all of these things. Because again, they, they did so to protect themselves. But in so doing, they, they revealed, again, spiritually speaking, they were a dark people. They'd become confused. They had lost their way. As difficult as that situation was, however, when Isaiah comes on the scene in, in chapters 7 through 8 and into 9, you see that the things are just going to get more difficult for the people of Judah. For as we probably can predict, the prophet Isaiah says, look, there are consequences for your foolish actions. God sees everything that you're doing. God is not okay with your unrighteousness. He's not okay with you adopting these godless practices, but instead, God will bring tremendous judgment upon you. And it, should no be, it is not surprised to many of us to understand that God brings that judgment in the form of the Assyrians. And Isaiah tells these people of Judah, that Assyrian empire that you trust so quickly will soon spill over into your own land. And the Assyrians will not be happy with just your mere taxes, with your mere lip service. They will also take over your land. They will deport you. They will kill many of you. They will take away everything you have. So harsh was this judgment. So dark was the moment of history for these people in Judah then verses 21 through 22 of Isaiah chapter 8, we read this summary regarding their future experience. 
Their God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. It will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. It is hard to fully appreciate how crushing this message must have been to them. For these people in Judah had no doubt believed that that they were making ends meet, that surely things would work out, but the prophet Isaiah shows up on the scene to tell them, no, no, it's over. You're going to be taken into exile. You will be driven into a land of darkness. When you look up to the sky to cry out, there will be no answer. There will only be silence. And when you look around you in your earthly place, there will only be frustration. There will only be heartache. There will only be darkness. You will, as Isaiah says earlier in verse 20, you will, be a land, you will be as a people living in a land without any promise of dawn. In the heart of darkness, totally absence of hope. While none of us perhaps can appreciate the level of hopelessness that the people of Judah faced at this moment, all of us, I think at least in some way, can, can relate to that feeling of frustration. For all of us, in the midst of any sinful temptation, in the midst of, of falling into any sinful practice, do so believing that, that surely, surely God will be okay with this. In the midst of this difficult world that we live in, it's easy to buy into the belief that, that an occasional sin here or there will not do us any harm, that it will bring us that, that bit of joy that we seek, that bit of relief that we so desperately need. Even though we confess faith in a living Savior, so oftentimes we live as if His rule does not actually apply to us. We live as if, well, we have no other choice but to simply go by the way of the world. For it is better to seek after our own protection than openly bring in our own defeat, openly suffer harm. This darkness, of course, is not, only, not always only the, the result of our own sin. If we recognize that the result of living in a fallen world um, also brings about other forms of darkness. And so many of us, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of of various trials we're put through, again, feel a bit hopeless. And in the midst of any given trial, it's easy to question the goodness of God. It's easy to question whether or not God is really at work in the midst of this darkness, whether or not we'll actually ever be able to overcome this momentary midnight. In the midst of that darkness, it's easy to lose all sense of hope. It's easy to lose joy. It's easy to look just as foolish and as blind as these people in Judah. And even if we cannot appreciate that darkness in the moment, it's important for the sake of, of understanding the text that we try to place ourselves in the seat of these people in Judah. For it is when we sit in their place, it's when we appreciate the weight of that darkness, that the words of Isaiah 9, 1-7 through fall in, in the shocking manner that they ought to fall. The words of Isaiah chapter 9, 1-7 through are, are as unlikely and as unexpected as we could possibly believe. For in the midst of Isaiah's darkness, in the midst of that difficult time, suddenly Isaiah changes tunes in chapter 9. And suddenly to these people in darkness, Isaiah insists that there will be this day in which no more gloom will be felt. To these people that he has just told that you will go into exile, you will suffer horrifically, Isaiah then immediately says, but there will come a day. There will come a day when there will be no more suffering. 
There will come a day when this land that feels the full brunt force of the Assyrian Empire will somehow rejoice that they will enjoy their own harvest, that they will have the rod of oppression removed from their shoulders. There will come a day when there will be no more war, and this day will be brought about, as, as odd as it sounds, by this child in verse 6. This child who would come and would rule in a way that is entirely different than, than the way any king they've ever had ruled them. For unlike King Ahaz, unlike any king they've ever seen, this child will have divine wisdom. This child will somehow be able to remove all war. This child will rule forever. This child will do everything that will not only bring about restoration, but will bring about a life that is better than, than anyone's ever experienced in the minds of the people of Judah. You can imagine both the confusion, but also the sense of, of excitement, of elation, this sort of promise would bring to people in the midst of that darkness. You can understand that in the midst of that darkness, that this promise is intended to really carry the people of God throughout their coming exile. And in fact, that is the case. For as we move on throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah and move on throughout the rest of the history of Israel in the Old Testament, it is this promise that people continually come back to. And regardless of how good times might become temporarily, it is this promise that people continually are reminded of as they, were, as they were told time and time again, remember, time will come when this child will arrive. The time will come when this perfect king will come onto the scene. The time will come when we will understand life as it was intended to be lived. The words of Isaiah are tremendous. And yet as tremendous as they are, it can only be assumed that as time progressed, what would happen to the people and their reliance upon this promise? I mean, this promise can only hold hope for so long. These people were about to be carried off into exile and they would suffer for hundreds of years. In the midst of that suffering, you can imagine how easy it would have been to forget the promises of Isaiah. In the midst of their ongoing darkness, that dawn that is promised in the Messiah would, would easily be missed. In the midst of the hundreds of years of silence that would fall between the Old and the New Testament, you can imagine how few Israelites, how few people of God, really relied on that promise anymore. And yet, suddenly, despite how easy it would have been to forget, despite how many hundreds of years passed between Isaiah chapter 9 and the opening pages of the New Testament, we see suddenly, in the midst of this darkness, spark of light. And as we open up into the New Testament pages, language is picked up that, that, that sound as if, well, no time's passed at all. Language is picked up as if the promise of Isaiah is suddenly and quickly being fulfilled. Language is used that quickly declares that that long-awaited dawn has in fact arrived. And we see this throughout the pages of the gospel accounts. You see it immediately over in Luke. If you'll follow over into Luke, you can again appreciate and see how this language of Isaiah is picked up. In Luke chapter 1, you have that famous visitation from Gabriel to Mary when he lets her know of this coming son that would be born. And when speaking to Mary, Gabriel says this in Luke chapter 1, verses 30, uh, verse 31 through 33. There the angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Again, P 
Picture this message in light of the hundreds of years of silence that have preceded it. After hundreds of years of complete silence, suddenly an angel shows up before Mary and he speaks in a way that clearly goes back to Isaiah. And he says that son that was promised in Isaiah, that son will come through you now. Just as Isaiah says, this angel speaks of how this son will be king for he will rule from the throne of David. Not only that, just as Isaiah proclaims, the angel here picks up the language and says, indeed, this king will rule forever. This is, of course, not the only announcement of the birth of this long-awaited Messiah. You see similar language given to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, later on in Luke chapter 1. In this prophecy that was given to Zechariah by the Holy Spirit, Zechariah says these words in verses 78 through 79 of Luke 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Again, after hundreds of years of silence, suddenly Zechariah is proclaiming the dawn. Suddenly in the midst of utter silence, Zechariah is proclaiming that the words of Isaiah have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in this mysterious figure. As you continue to move through the birth accounts of Jesus, you see time and time again this language picked up. Many of these accounts are familiar to us. Many of us recognize the words of the angels as they speak to the shepherds and we recognize them so much that that we lose sight of just how shocking these announcements would have been. But if you are an Israelite, if you had any knowledge of the coming prophecy, let me switch over here. If you had any knowledge of the prophecy of the king, When you hear these words of the angels, when you hear these words of Gabriel, your mind is suddenly taken back to those earlier words of of Isaiah, and suddenly these things begin to click. Suddenly, you understand that this son, this figure, is far greater than anything you could have ever possibly imagined. And indeed, as Christ is born, you see the fulfillment of of Isaiah's long-held promise to the people of Judah. But of course, if you're a cynic reading these, it's easy to still question this Christ figure. And I think oftentimes, even around the times of Christmas, we sell the story short, for we leave it as Jesus in a manger, and we fail to appreciate just how glorious his earthly ministry was then, shortly. For as difficult as it would have been to understand, And as difficult as it would have been to imagine how the words of Isaiah could have possibly come true, as you enter into Jesus' entrance into his public ministry and then Jesus' character, you see that not only are the words of Isaiah fulfilled, but they're fulfilled in an infinitely greater manner. And they're fulfilled in, in every detail, including the geographical location. If you look over to Matthew chapter 4, you see that, that this birth of the Savior led into his earthly ministry. And where did Jesus' earthly ministry begin in Matthew chapter 4? Well, it begins just as Isaiah claimed in, in the land of Galilee. There in the land of Galilee, at this point in time, under the control of the Romans, under the control, again, of a godless empire, we read these words in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, uh, paralytics, and he healed them. 
Large crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and Jerusalem of Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Again, those of us who are familiar with these texts miss just how shocking and how clearly prophetic these passages truly are. For after hundreds of years of silence and after the brief mention of the birth of the son, 30 years later, suddenly this figure Jesus comes out on the scene and he comes out in in none less than, than Galilee the exact land that Isaiah said he would appear in. And in that land of Galilee, this unknown figure, Jesus, immediately does what? He proclaims the kingdom. He heals people of demon possession. He does things that no human ruler could ever possibly do. He clearly demonstrates that he was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the king long foretold back in Isaiah chapter 9. But still, even in the midst of such powerful ministry, The words of Isaiah seem too good to believe, for back in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, again, this figure was said to be mighty God, Prince of Peace. This figure was said to be so great, again, that that it seems beyond our comprehension. Again, as you consider the ministry of Christ, time and time again you see that ministry and and that character fulfilled in all that he did. We see this even as we go through the names given to him back in Isaiah 9, beginning with this idea that this coming king would be a wonderful counselor. This divine king would be the one who, who, spat, who, who espouses this incredible wisdom that is beyond anything that people could possibly understand. This, of course, borrows from the language of wisdom in the Old Testament. Time and time again in the Old Testament, Yahweh is said to have wisdom that's beyond our human comprehension. And as difficult as that is to imagine how that would look in a human, we see throughout the gospel ministry of Jesus that same level of wisdom being uh, being shown. Simply look over at the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, you see the people's response to this level of wisdom. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. We read, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not of the scribes. He goes on to describe further teaching by Jesus, but, but you see this wisdom at work. You see this wisdom in practice. And again, we can lose sight of how amazing this was, but, but put yourself in the shoes of these individuals hearing Jesus speak. Here is a figure who has received no training whatsoever. Here is a figure who is relatively unknown still at this point in time, and yet here is a figure who speaks with wisdom that is beyond the lawgivers themselves. And throughout the Gospels, you see how frustrating this wisdom was to those lawgivers, to those Pharisees and scribes, for Jesus is able to confuse them. He's able to demonstrate time and time again that he has a greater understanding of the law than they did themselves. Time and time again, Jesus shows this this divine level of wisdom. But still, as you continue to consider the words of Isaiah, you see that the characteristics of Jesus do not end with simply the idea that he was divinely wise. No, as you consider the next name, you consider an equally shocking, if not more shocking, characteristic of Jesus, which is this concept that he had the might of God in his hands. Again, put yourself in the the lives of, of the people of Jude in the Old Testament. Consider the acts of might that God puts on display in the Old Testament. You see the might displayed from the beginning in Genesis when God speaks creation into existence. We cannot fathom the might that that would require. And yet God does it without any struggle, 
without, without any difficulty, simply speaks, and whatever he wants comes into being. You see the same level of power and might put on display in his relationship with people. In books like Deuteronomy chapter 26, you see this might put on display with respect to the story of the Exodus. Describing that famous account in Deuteronomy chapter 26, we read these words of remembrance. It says, We cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice. He saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror and signs and wonders, and he brought us to the place that he has given us a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, consider the awe-inspiring might of Yahweh in these passages. A God who has the power to simply speak and bring plagues into existence. A God who, without any difficulty at all, can take a group of slaves and take them out of the most powerful empire in the world at the time in Egypt. He does so with ease. He does so with ultimate might. You have many other stories along these same lines, and after these many stories, one can imagine the difficulty of believing that this figure Jesus could could show that same level of might, and yet you see that might put on display time and time again in Jesus' ministry. You see it with respect to the might that he has over creation. While he does not speak creation into existence in the Gospels, He shows the same ability to command it with absolute authority. In Mark chapter 4, you have the famous account of of the disciples being with Jesus in a boat as, as they are tossed about by a terrifying storm. The disciples fully believe they are about to die, and so they they wake up their master, they wake up their teacher and and beg him to help. And you read of Jesus' response in Mark chapter 4. Chapter, verses 37 through 41, where we read this. Again, describing the scene, there arose a fierce gale of wind. The waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Again, these disciples see this, this divine level of might, and they are rightly terrified, for they understand this is not some mere figure. He can speak to a storm and calm it. He has absolute authority and might over the, the ocean, over the sea. And as terrifying and as incredible as that was, however, it doesn't even touch on, on the many other examples of Jesus' might included his might over people. In John chapter 11, you have perhaps the most famous example outside of his own resurrection in the story of the raising of Lazarus. Again, imagine that the might that is being put on display here for after the death of his friend Lazarus, Jesus comes on the scene. After Lazarus has been dead for some time, Jesus approaches his tomb, and in John chapter 11, verse 38, we read this account. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot in wrappings, and his face was wrapped around him in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. Again, you see this terrifying level of might that Jesus performs without any difficulty, without any struggle. Jesus, with the might of God, can speak to the sea, and the sea has to obey. Jesus, because he is God, is able to speak to the dead, and the dead have to obey. There is no option for Lazarus to stay in the tomb. He must obey because this is God. This is the creator speaking. This is the one proclaimed in Isaiah who has the might of God at his hand, who does not depend on some godless ruler, for he himself is the ruler of everything. You move forward in the the words of Isaiah, though, and you see it does not simply stop with his might, for on top of being a mighty God, this king is said to rule as an eternal father. And again, this would have been so foreign in the minds of, of any ancient Near Eastern person, for if you have the might of God, if you have the ability to rule people, you do so with a strict hand. You do so demonstrating your might, your power over everyone at all moments. And yet, Isaiah says, this future king will rule as as a compassionate father. This coming king will rule with love and and an appreciation, the same way that, that Yahweh loves Israel throughout the Old Testament. And in the same way that Yahweh leads his people as a gentle shepherd, you come to the New Testament and you see Jesus time and time again ruling and leading time and time again in that same manner. The same Jesus who was able to, with complete might, complete authority, command a a dead man to rise again. And the same Jesus who, with great authority and great might, condemns the Pharisees, speaks with shocking compassion to those who seek him. He speaks with with a shocking level of grace and understanding and love to, to the most worthless of sinners. He approaches his people as a shepherd approaches his sheep. And he lovingly gathers them in time and time again, despite their disobedience. Despite how clueless they are of his power. Despite how clueless they are of his own divine, uh, uh, divine part being given and dying for us. He, he time and time again rules with compassion, with love, in the same way that a father loves his own children. Again, You understand that as as these individuals watch this Jesus rule in this way, the words of Isaiah must be ringing in the back of their ears. They must be remembering time and time again that this is, this must be, the long-awaited Messiah. And yet despite all of those clear mentions, despite how obvious it is to us as we read these texts, as we continue in Isaiah and as we continue to examine the fulfillment in the Gospels, you see that the people of Israel had thought too narrowly when it came to the fulfillment of the promise. For ultimately, as great as his counsel is, as great as his might is, as great as that compassion is, the entire point of this birth of the Messiah, the entire point of his ministry, falls on the shoulders of the final name, this idea of him being Prince of Peace. Now, of course, if you were an Israelite, that peace that you envisioned was peace from the Assyrians. The peace that you imagined when Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 9 surely spoke to to peace from a time in exile. Surely that would be enough. Surely that is what we need to survive. You carry that into the New Testament and you see that same narrow-minded, short-sighted expectation of the people of God for all they wanted was peace from the Romans. They just wanted to to no longer be under strict submission, strict authority in such a godless empire. 
And so when Jesus spoke of, of his coming death, when Jesus spoke of his coming crucifixion, that seemed to contradict everything they had anticipated. And yet, in speaking of his coming death, burial and resurrection, of course, Jesus was bringing the ultimate and greater fulfillment of this, this name, Prince of Peace. For Jesus understood that the greater peace that mankind needed was not peace from our, our, our mortal enemies. It's not peace from a corrupt government. It's the peace that, that man needs first and foremost with God. For Jesus does not simply come to bring us deliverance from a political ruler. He seeks to, to deliver us from our own sin, from our own slavery to the devil. He seeks to come and bring us into a right relationship with God the Father. And he does so, of course, through his ultimate death, burial, and resurrection. And it's because of that death, burial, and resurrection that Paul in Romans chapter 5 is able to say, in him we've been given peace. In him we've been given new life. And it is in that new life that peace is suddenly understood. It is in that new life that the King Christ reigns supreme and establishes himself as not simply the ruler of an earthly land, but the ruler of all creation. He establishes himself truly as the dawn that will never go away, the dawn that cannot be overcome. When one understands the level of fulfillment that is found in these names, when one understands just how significant this promise of Isaiah is, one can begin to understand again just how precious the concept of of waiting on Christmas is. One can understand why we celebrate with such great joy and why we ought to have such a great level of excitement in waiting for that day. For we recognize that we do not celebrate some historical event, but we celebrate the ongoing rule of Christ our King. We understand that as dark as the times that we live in might become, and as silent as it might seem that God is in the midst of these times, that God's plan is still being perfectly enacted. And that just as was the case in Isaiah, God still sits enthroned. Just as was the case at the beginning of the gospel with the birth of Jesus, God sits enthroned. Just as was the case when Jesus died on a cross, God was still enthroned. God's plan was never in question. The Almighty God never struggles to come through with his promises. And just as he came through with his promise to bring that breaking dawn of the original Christmas we can know for a fact that he will come through with this final promise of of Jesus returning again and delivering us and ruling over us as this eternal king, ruling over us and delivering us forever and finally from the darkness of this world. And so as we continue in our time of waiting, it's essential first and foremost as Christians to step back and appreciate this light that's given to us. It's important for us as Christians to look back to that original Christmas and see that breaking dawn and and be reminded of the fact that in that breaking dawn we see the truth of the gospel and we see the promise of a new day that is still coming. As we understand that, then we not only greatly anticipate the celebration of Christmas, but we anticipate the celebration of his future coming.